Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, St. Luke's Concert Series in Oviedo is celebrating its 20th anniversary. We didn't have any money, and, and we really couldn't afford to, uh, to hire professional musicians from elsewhere. And so we looked around to see who else needed us. We'll look at the 1821 decree that the Spanish government sent to St. Augustine, informing citizens that Florida had been sold to the United States. Generally, we say that the United States paid about $5 million, but really they just sort of excused debts they were already owed up to not exceeding $5 million. Early urban planning in Jacksonville, all that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The Orlando Philharmonic is playing music of Georges Bizet as part of the St. Luke's Concert Series. It's one of eight programs that make up the 20th anniversary season of the St. Luke's Concert Series. One program per month is being presented from September 2013 through April 2014. Joining the Orlando Philharmonic are the Brass Band of Central Florida, the UCF Symphony Orchestra, the Orlando Concert Band, and the Lutheran Cantata Choir and Chamber Ensemble. Twenty years ago, Central Florida's classical music community was in a state of flux. After more than four decades, the cornerstone of that community, the Florida Symphony Orchestra, ceased operation. It was during this period of uncertainty that St. Luke's Lutheran Church in Oviedo stepped up to offer a free concert series. Judy Duda has been coordinator of the St. Luke's Concert Series for 20 years. Well, the impetus or the catalyst, I guess you would say, was the construction of a new sanctuary that could seat almost a thousand people. Prior to that, St. Luke's, which had been around um, at that time already for over 80 years, had first worshipped in a turpentine shack, moved into a small brick building in the late 1930s, and by 1990 was worshipping in a a structure that seated about 400. Now a new sanctuary was built, and to dedicate it, we had a special concert to feature our new organ. It was then we discovered how much the audience enjoyed it, how amazing the acoustical environment was, and decided we needed to share this blessing with the whole community if we could. From the beginning 20 years ago, the St. Luke's Concert Series has been supportive of performing groups from Central Florida. One of those reasons was a practical one. Uh, we didn't have any money, and, and we really couldn't afford to, uh, to hire professional musicians from elsewhere. And so we looked around to see who else needed us. And one of those entities was University of Central Florida Symphony Orchestra, 
which was really our first outreach program. We did in the first few years uh, bring in a few touring groups from uh, universities around the country, the American Boys Choir, uh, and so forth. But soon we found that we had a treasure chest of local performing groups that simply needed an opportunity and a venue like we could offer to them. You mentioned the Florida Symphony Orchestra um, going defunct after 40 years, and this is true, but out of the ashes uh, arose the Orlando Philharmonic, which just recently celebrated its 20th anniversary. So it was very soon after they began that they became one of our performing uh, groups as well. Supporting music education at all levels has been another primary objective of the St. Luke's Concert Series. Judy Duda. We've also hosted Stetson and uh, groups from Rollins, um, Lutheran universities from around the country. And we have a school at St. Luke's for a pre-K through 8th grade program of about 700 students who, of course, also benefit from the tie-in because they're being exposed to wonderful quality music at the same time. St. Luke's Concert Series has always been free to the public, but like any not-for-profit operation, there have been funding challenges along the way. The musicians are paid, uh, or the performing groups, if not the individual musicians, and there are other production costs as well, marketing costs and others. So we're totally dependent upon generous donations from individuals, from corporations, from uh, small community grants, and I underscore small. Uh, we publish a printed program for every concert, but it doesn't include advertising. We've never paid for any advertising. But I think the strength of our model uh, has been that it is a totally volunteer-driven organization. I think every every year at least, sometimes more than once, I get a request from some entity, often from other states, saying, we've heard about your concert series, you've made it a success, how can you do this and still offer free admission? And um, really, I think that's the secret. We've kept our our costs as low as possible, and that philosophy has been embraced and admired by enough people in the community who step up and say, but we'll help you do it. Over the past 20 years, the St. Luke's Concert Series has presented about 150 concerts with many memorable moments. For Judy Duda, one particularly special concert was performed in 2006. It featured the resident composer of the Orlando Philharmonic, Dr. Stella Sung, who has become a well-known composer in her own right, and a faculty member at UCF, a notable virtuosic violinist who is also on the staff at UCF, Dr. Ayako Yanatani, and a third guest, a violinist also from Kazakhstan, Iman Masakodaiva, who travels with a diplomatic passport, uh, who travels with an entourage of her own, including a doctor and uh, several other assistants. Stella Sung wrote for, was commissioned to do a double concerto for violins, for two violins, just as Johann Sebastian Bach had done. And in this program, we featured in the first half Stella Sung's composition, and in the second half, uh, Bach's double concerto. Iman from Kazakhstan, a place of $4 million Stradivarius, was gorgeously attired as a beautiful, talented woman herself, 
as is Ayako, and the audience was just beside themselves. The preparation for that concert was something that made it memorable for me because following the dress rehearsal, I had people from nine countries around my dining room table as we celebrated the dress rehearsal. So it, it has to go down in the annals as one of the most memorable ones of all. When it started 20 years ago, the St. Luke's Concert Series attracted several hundred people to each performance. Today, the average audience is several times that large. The early years, which began in 1993, were pre-computer for St. Luke's. We didn't have digitization. We had The only way we could market our concerts was through our own membership or literally cutting and pasting um, symbols and and um, pictures and putting them on mimeograph sheets and then posting them in store windows around the area. So at, at the beginning, we had two or three hundred people, and I can remember the day on which we were so excited because we had reached this magnificent attendance number of 400. Now, today, with our 11 concerts performed each season, we average a thousand at every concert. Sometimes Occasionally, we have to actually close the doors uh, for overflow because of fire marshal regulations. Between September 2013 and April 2014, the St. Luke's Concert Series will present 11 concerts ranging from popular music played by a brass band to classical orchestral music. One concert features the premiere of a new work called Florida Home, played by the UCF Symphony Orchestra. The 70-piece orchestra will be augmented by about 65 voices from the UCF choruses um, in singing something that, singing and performing something that was commissioned for UCF's 50th anniversary, um, a piece that is being world premiered at St. Luke's that night, and it's called Florida Home, written by Dr. Christopher Marshall. Through its longevity and quality, the St. Luke's Concert Series has become part of Florida history. Coordinator Judy Duda hopes the series will still be going strong in another 20 years. Oh, I hope so. It's rather doubtful that I'll be the coordinator of St. Luke's Concert Series 20 years from now, but um, there's certainly 
a lot of support and goodwill at St. Luke's. We see the mutual benefits for our church community, for our surrounding community, for the city of Oviedo, in fact, and certainly for building relationships and um, encouraging music education on a higher level and supporting the efforts of our uh, local professional and volunteer music groups. The 20th anniversary season of the St. Luke's Concert Series is underway with one program per month presented from September 2013 through April 2014. Performers include the Orlando Philharmonic, the UCF Symphony Orchestra, Orlando Concert Band, the Lutheran Cantata Choir and Chamber Ensemble, and the Brass Band of Central Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, explore our educational resources, and listen to archived editions of this program. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. That's Arthur Schnabel playing Beethoven's Piano Sonata No. 31 in A-flat, Opus 110. 
That piece was composed in 1821, the same year that the Spanish government informed people in St. Augustine that they were now living in a territory of the United States. Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Today we're looking at an official uh, royal decree from the Spanish crown uh, to the inhabitants of Florida, uh, essentially telling them that Florida has been uh, sold or the uh, Florida has been transferred to the United States. So this is the document um, issued by the governor of East Florida, Jose uh, Copinger, um, to the inhabitants or the uh, the people of uh, specifically St. Augustine living in East Florida, uh, announcing that Florida has now been transferred to the United States. So they are no longer under the authority of the Spanish government. Now, what did the U.S. government uh, pay the Spanish for the Florida territory? Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, uh, the Spanish uh, really brokered a deal as part of what we call the Adams-Onis Treaty that really started back in about 1819. So it was uh, took a few years to sort of uh, hammer out the details. But essentially, um, the United States uh, absolved um, debts that were owed to the, gov- to the U.S. government uh, by the Spanish. So um, they absolved debts up to about $5 million. So generally we say that the United States paid about $5 million, but really they just sort of excused debts they were already owed up to or not exceeding $5 million. And that covers uh, all of Florida. So at the time, Florida was broken into two territories, East and West Florida. And West Florida actually stretched far into what is now uh, Mississippi. So we're talking about an enormous territory. Um, and it was really the last, uh, one of the last strongholds that, that uh, the Spanish really had in the continental U.S. So this time the United States sort of surrounded the Spanish. Um, and, and this was the last kind of push to uh, really control the entire eastern seaboard. So the United States now controlled that whole coastline. As you're saying, uh, this didn't happen overnight. The U.S. had already been been pushing its way into Florida. Uh, tell me a little bit about what had been going on with the U.S. coming into Florida. Right. Well, what's really interesting is that the, the second Spanish period, you know, starting in 1783 when the Spanish came back to Florida, was really marred with uh, um, a, a lot of issues. Uh, the Spanish came into a very sort of weak position of power, and they really didn't control uh, 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 the inhabitants of Florida really didn't control the territory completely throughout that whole period. Um, and there are actually a number of invasions by Americans and American militias into Florida. Uh, the, the largest one was actually what we call the, the Patriot Rebellion. And it was part of, and now it's sort of amalgamated as part of the War of 1812, but it was actually a group of uh, Georgia uh, uh, militia members uh, led by the governor who actually forcibly invaded East Florida and tried to um, start an uprising. They tried to get the planters who were living in Spanish Florida to rise up and revolt against the Spanish government. And uh, if they did that, then the United States could sort of slide into this power vacuum and they'd be able to sort of take over without having to go through the treaty uh, negotiations that eventually happened in 1819. Uh, and there were a few other smaller uh, invasions in, in West Florida and other parts. So there's, you have to sort of think of the, the, uh, the border with the United States is being very porous. So you had a lot of people sort of moving back and forth, a lot of settlers who were coming in from the United States, from Georgia uh, and Alabama and places like that into Florida and sort of homesteading on Spanish territory. And like I said, this this weak uh, control uh, didn't help the Spanish. So they really couldn't fight back very well. So it really was just kind of a matter of time uh, before the United States fully acquired uh, the, the Florida territories. 
Now, this document that we're looking at from 1821 uh, is letting the citizens of uh, St. Augustine know that uh, their home is now under U.S. control, not Spanish control. Uh, Do we know what their reaction was to this decree? Um, well, it was kind of interesting. The, in this document, the, uh, the governor is actually trying to persuade citizens to uh, leave Florida and move to another Spanish colony. Uh, he actually mentions uh, Cuba specifically. So he's trying to get these uh, plantation owners and some of these uh, uh, the, the wealthier citizens to move from uh, Spanish Florida and kind of abandon the territory. Um, and he really dragged his feet during this whole process. So he was doing his best to uh, make it difficult for the Americans to move into to Florida. Um, and we did have, there are a, a few planters who did leave, uh, but there were a lot of people who stayed. Uh, there were a lot of uh, uh, prominent uh, citizens who stayed in Florida who had already established these large plantations. Uh, and so it was sort of a, a mixed reaction, but for the most part, uh, people stayed in Florida and just sort of adapted to the new rule of law. And the Americans tried to make it easy. So they did work with um, uh, people who had received Spanish land grants to honor a lot of those land grants. Uh, and there were uh, decades of, of litigation tied in with these uh, these land sessions. So um, the U.S. really kind of inherited a, a legal mess, you know, because there were, there were a lot of people uh, who had never really come to Florida but maybe applied for land grants, and now they said, well, you know what, I'll move to Florida now. And he had a lot of Americans moving into Florida as well. So after the U.S. took over, it starts sort of this territorial period. We call it the territorial period in Florida history. We had a lot of uh, new settlers sort of moving in and, and um, establishing plantations in, in middle Florida and, and in east and west Florida. And this original 1821 document is written in Spanish, of course, but uh, here at the Library of Florida History, you also have a, an English translation for researchers who don't uh, read Spanish. Right. Uh, a, a couple of years ago, I actually had a, a volunteer who had uh, studied uh, in Spain uh, and had studied uh, documents from this period, uh, from the uh, 18th and 19th century, and was able to uh, translate uh, word for word the actual document. And we have uh, that direct translation available for researchers. So uh, even though, of course, it's, it's difficult to read, uh, even for someone who uh, uh, is, is a native Spanish speaker, this style of, of Spanish is a little bit difficult uh, to read and, and to decipher. So we've actually translated it verbatim. So you can, a uh, researcher can come in and actually read through the original document. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Jacksonville is the largest city in Florida by population and the largest city by area in the continental United States. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has this look at early urban planning in Jacksonville. Two people moved to Florida within a few years of each other in the 19-teens and wound up working together to make a difference in uh, Jacksonville. This was historian Dr. Alan Bliss telling us about the interconnected professional lives of Grace Wilbur Trout and George W. Simons. Beginning in the 1920s, both Trout and Simons would help to revolutionize the ways in which Jacksonville managed its growth. They would help to usher in the era of professional city planning, which would become a model for metropolitan regions throughout the state. Dr. Bliss gives us a picture of Jacksonville as it entered the 1920s when both Trout 
and Simons would have been recent residents to the city. The same geography that made Jacksonville important in the Civil War uh, really drove its whole development, its population, its, its patterns of work and business, uh, and its economy into the 20th century. By the 1920s, Jacksonville was the biggest city by far in Florida. And in 1920, even Miami was really relatively tiny compared to Jacksonville. It was a genuine cosmopolitan metropolis. Before either moved to the River City, Grace Trout had the more accomplished life of the two. Dr. Bliss tells us about what she was able to accomplish quickly upon her move to Jacksonville. Uh, she was from Illinois, from Chicago. She was important before she came to Florida because she was a nationally influential suffragist. After the success of the suffrage amendment, she moved from Illinois to Jacksonville, Florida, and bought a house that had belonged to a cousin of hers. And she became an important part of what turned into a city planning advisory board. And city planning had not existed in Jacksonville before that, and there had actually been a certain amount of resistance to it on the part of influential politicians and business people in Jacksonville. And it was one of Mrs. Trout's gifts that when she saw something important that she thought needed to be done, even if there were influential people who didn't agree with her, it was her gift to convince them that they were wrong and that she was right. Unlike Miss Trout, George Simons made a name for himself in Jacksonville. Dr. Bliss recalls how his early life pushed him towards a career in city planning. She wound up collaborating with another person who's been sort of overlooked by history. I'm talking here about a man named George W. Simons. He didn't seem to have known Mrs. Trout. He was trained at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology as an engineer, and his first job out of college was to come to work for the state of Florida as the public health official for the State Department of Health which was headquartered in Jacksonville at the time. He moved here, took up that job, traveled the state of Florida, became acquainted with uh, issues that had to do with the quality of life. And to him, that's what made city planning important. These two individuals brought different skills to their efforts. Dr. Bliss tells us their overall impact to the planning history of the city. The life of people who lived in Florida in the 19-teens and the 1920s was very different from what you and I experience in contemporary Florida in the 21st century. Uh, there was practically nothing in the way of indoor plumbing except in the grandest homes and the most important buildings and cities. Air conditioning was non-existent. Automobiles were rare. Paved highways were exceptional. George Simons got interested in city planning and when he and Grace Trout started to collaborate with each other to push Jacksonville toward planning, they made a difference. With great Grace Trout's political support and acumen and George Simon's professional training and engineering background, they persuaded the City Council of Jacksonville to adopt uh, Florida's first significant comprehensive city plan, and they also adopted zoning for the city of Jacksonville. They did all that in 1929, and uh, the plan, of course, has been amended and updated since then. But George Simons, for his part, went on to a career as a city planner. He did plans for over 50 cities throughout the American Southeast. And Mrs. Trout, for her part, lived on uh, in Jacksonville for the rest of her life. She passed away in the 1940s. That was Dr. Alan Bliss. 
And I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society to get our daily post today in Florida history. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.